Have you ever had a goal that just seemed impossible? If so, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Consistent Runner Girls Notable Peeps, the series that gives attention to remarkable people who are putting on their shoes, doing their best, and believing in the impossible. All my dreams are coming, all my dreams are humming, all my dreams are coming true. Hey, hey, welcome to the Notable Peeps podcast. My name's Steph. And guys, I just have to brag about our guest today. So not only has he been on the Ellen DeGeneres show, which is super rad, but his music has been published by Disney. And to top that off, he plays the piano with his... What? My head. Your head. I was going to say that, but then I was like, is that right? That's right. So welcome, Jason Lyle Black. Thanks, Steph. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Hey, thanks for coming. So Jason, this is like really cliche question. I bet you get it all the time, but I was thinking about it. I'm like, if you're playing the pedals with your head, do you get a headache at the end? Do you get asked that all the time? I get asked it fairly often. It's not, uh, it's not too bad unless you start doing it for a long time. You know, if I were to do that for the entire show, then I'd probably have, uh, more, uh, mental, you know, and brain problems than I already have. <laughs> that's, a, that's a joke, but yeah, it would, uh, I would probably have a concussion. Well, okay. So I want to start by asking you about your first album. It was published 13 years ago. 2004. Yeah. Flood of Keys. Flood of Keys. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, first off, thank you for asking about it. Pretty sure that's the first time I've been asked about that album. Really? <laughs> so that's good. Um, Flood of Keys was a project that I did in high school. So I wrote, uh, recorded, and marketed an entire album of original music for the piano. So I had 12 songs on it. It's about an hour long. And so, yeah, recorded that album. And uh, and then at night, I'd stay up at night duplicating the CDs and putting the labels on them, putting them in the jewel cases, and then taking them to school at the end of my junior year of school to sell them to my friends. So... It was a lot of, a lot of work. I think I sold the album for 10 bucks and had a fair handful of friends buy the CD. So I actually want to re-release a song from Flood of Keys someday on another album just to prove that I could write in high school. <laughs> it's taken 13 years, you know, to get to this point, but that was some pretty good music back then, actually. That's so cool. What high school student like produces their own album? And right. did you have like people with your sh- name on their shirt being like, Jason? <laughs> no. But yeah, I, the point is I had started in the business quite early. Way to start young. Yeah. <laughs> and so then when you were in college, you were going to school, you were doing different gigs on the side. And tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I started at BYU in 2005. And um, I actually had gotten connected with John Schmidt that year, who I wasn't really very familiar with. Um oddly enough growing up even though he's very popular in utah i grew up in california and so i wasn't as familiar with his music but had the opportunity to to get to know him a little bit and i'd created this parody act of him i was always interested in the comedic side of music so i'd created a parody act of john and i had the chance to do that for him at the end of my freshman year and then he invited me to come back and do it in his show so i got to perform live with him in 2006 which was awesome and actually at the Sandy Amphitheater, um, where I now have, uh, have my own show coming up. Um, and then I went on a mission for two years. And so I came back 
and got back in performing with him a few more times and then started doing my own concerts, full length shows. Um, and then I put out three more albums over the next three years. So in 2009, did another point of view. And then I did a Christmas album in 2011 called Midnight Clear. And then in 2012, did an LDS hymns album called Hope of Israel. So all instrumental piano, all of those. Um, but yeah, so by 2012, I had put out four albums and I had now been in the business for quite a few years. So that was where it started to get a little more challenging for me. After you've been in it that long and you're still not seeing the fruit that you would hope, that's pretty tough. So that's when you got discouraged? Yeah, it was uh, really around kind of the 2011, 2012 timeframe. I had uh, been on the Ellen Show in 2010, actually. And I had expected that would just launch my career and it didn't. So that was, that was a little bit challenging. Um, Lindsay Sterling was at BYU the same time as me. We didn't know each other, but we were both there and we had mutual friends and whatnot. And this was again before she was megastar. So she had just gone on America's Got Talent. I think it was 2009 that she went on the show. And then I went on Ellen in 2010. And then, you know, she was doing all the YouTube stuff. Of course, she was doing these amazing videos, you know, with Devin Supertramp. And I was doing a lot of videos, but they weren't high end, you know, nicer music videos. So it was just set up a tripod in a classroom with a piano and play. And so I did dozens and dozens of videos like that. And the comments I would get from people, people would say things like, this is the best cover of this song on YouTube. Like, this is amazing. Why do you not have millions of views on your channel? I would get comments like that frequently. And that was what was really discouraging because here, you know, now at this point, this is 2011, 2010, 2011, 2012. And I've been at it for years now. Again, it's a 2004 full length album, right? So we're talking seven, eight years now. And to still have very little to kind of show for that. And, you know, I never, it was never my intention to study music in college, but, uh, music was actually what I wanted to do professionally at that time of my life. And, and that was, was my job in college. I was getting paid to perform, um, for companies. I started my first corporate entertainment gigs were as a college student. So anyway, long story after that, I just sort of hung up my hat on YouTube in 2012 and, and, uh, went off to be a CPA when I graduated. And there was, there was definitely a, a need to, I, I just, I wanted to succeed in what I was doing. And so I had put quite a few years into music. And so I said, I'm done with that. And I went off to be an accountant. And so, but you talked about a little bit of videos, but in an article that I read, didn't you say it was something like 60? That's, yep. that's a lot of videos. Yeah. My, <laughs> when I did my frozen video, which is the video that finally put my brand on the map mm-hmm. um, nationally, that was my 69th video that I'd produced for YouTube. And if you go to my channel now, you know, some of those older videos aren't visible anymore, so people can't see that. But yeah, I had, I had done covers of, of, uh, well, either original songs or covers of popular songs for 68 other videos in that time. And that included some videos that, you know, some of my videos were just set up the tripod, play a song, and I'd, a new song would come out, I'd go arrange it, um, you know, new Bruno Mars song or something like that. But others of the videos were actually pretty in depth. Like there was one I did, it was the 12 Days of Christmas, a piano 12 tet. So not like a trio quartet, a 12 tet. Mm-hmm. So I actually, uh, my brother at the time was working in video professionally. And so he helped me do the video and we actually recorded 12 parts playing a get together and they're all in the video. So it's like a little Brady bunch. They just like pop up in the little windows. Oh, cool. And I did the 12 days of Christmas and this whole thing. And I was like, Oh, now my brand's going to take off. I made this amazing viral video of these 12 pianos playing the 12 days of Christmas. Of course that's going to be viral. Um, well, it <laughs> didn't really go anywhere. So, um, and not to be totally, you know, negative, but this is the reality. This was the reality of years and years and years of my time as a musician is it was just a lot of knowing I had the talent and other people telling me that I had the talent 
and then it, but it not proving out that I just, I couldn't make it, you know, professionally in that. And what I've now come to realize is that that's actually true of most people in the music industry who are successful is many of them spent years and years. Um, I think I remember, I could be wrong on this, but I thought it was Michael Buble that sang in bars in Canada for years before he was ever discovered and got anywhere. You look at the piano guys, John Schmidt. John had a career for almost 20 years, I think, before he was, before his, everything he'd created and with Steven, you know, took off when they met up with Alan Paul and, you know, got the piano guys. So it's just very common for people to feel like it's just not making it for a long time in music. Well, and that's why I love your story because it's sort of that underdog, you know, like how you yeah. had to work forever. And I love biographies. And one of my favorite biographies was Jay Leno's because he talked about how he would go and perform at these places and that they would throw cigarette buds at him, you know, <laughs> like he just was like, he would be booed off the stage, you know. And so just that, like you were talking about all these examples of people continuing, even though it, they weren't seeing what the worldly success, I guess, of a viral video or a, a sold out concert. Yeah. Lou, Louis C.K., same thing with, you know, one of the kings of comedy right now. Louis C.K. slept on the side of the road and dumpy motels for like 20 years. I mean, up, up until I think only six, seven, eight years ago, he was, he's now a megastar, but up, up until just a few years ago, he was, he's got interviews where he talks about it. it it's really interesting. And yeah, Lindsey Sterling. You know, her story has definitely been inspiring for me. And, and you know, it's true that on, on rare occasions you have an overnight success. You know, sometimes you do see those viral things that, you know, like the Chewbacca mom. I mean, I don't know what is an overnight success of, but you know, Chewbacca mom, the viral video, like nobody expected that she was going to become, you know, the, the world sensation, right? Of this video in the car, but that's so extremely rare, right? I mean, your odds are probably higher that you'd be president of the United States almost than that you would have a vi video, you know, the, that, <laughs> that just instantly catapults you into lasting, sustainable career fame or, you know, because even, you know, you look back at some of these viral start, what was the guy that, um, hide your kids, hide your wife, uh, you know, that guy. Oh yeah. Um, or Charlie bit my finger. Yeah. That's one of my favorite you know, ones. And these get famous, but then you don't usually see those people a few mm -hmm. years later. And so it's not always sustainable. And yeah, there are people that it's it just no matter who you are or what you're going after, it's going to take a long time to get there. So there's definitely things I could look back and see that I could have done differently. Might have sped it up. Um, like what? Like have a mentor. <laughs> Number one. Yeah. I was trying to go it alone. And I didn't realize that until I got the right mentors. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, for years I've been doing this wrong. So that, that first started with uh, Paul Cardall, who's the owner of Stone Angel Music, the record label I'm signed to. And Paul is a number one billboard charting artist a uh, couple times over. When I had the opportunity to sign to the label, it was like, you know, I'd done these four albums and Paul saw, you know, he saw the musical talent and just knew that I hadn't been able to market it right. And so... You know, that's why, I mean, all of a sudden my first album with the label charts right below Enya, number two on the genre chart, you know, with Billboard, three weeks up there. It's like everything that I had done all those years before, all of a sudden was directed the right way. You know, Paul crafted my musically, he crafted my artistry a bit and helped me kind of focus that in a way that would, would reach the most number of people. And then that helped, you know, obviously the marketing and the release of the album to make that a success. And then after that has been Jason Hewlett. And so he is a, is a national hall of fame speaker, events all over the world and a corporate entertainer. And he has also, you know, been in the business for years and has guided me through many of the mistakes, you know, that, I mean, everybody makes these mistakes early on, all of them did. And so they can help me avoid that. 
and help me focus on what's gonna what's gonna make me successful because a lot of times we go out and we chase the big shiny objects so that's one of the things i've realized is that um entrepreneurs and at least in the music industry i can say this you chase what you see everybody else chasing and that's not always a smart thing to be chasing so i see a lot of people trying to make youtube videos like the piano guys it's not a smart move because that's the piano guys you don't copy the piano guys and don't they make them on these like tops of cliffs and (laughs) yeah exactly and the piano what the piano guys did was genius it was genius and brilliant well you can't go out and do what the piano guys did and expect to have the same result because that was innovative when they did it you're just going to get compared the whole time and that's i see these people doing it and and they're they they spend tons of money and tons of time making these videos and it's like if you want to be successful you need to innovate in a different way and you need to make sure that whatever you're chasing is what you want to do and that's what i've realized is that my goal in life is actually not to be a viral video producer there's some people that do that that's awesome my goal in life is to be a globally touring artist to touch people's lives around the world to also do good greater good in the world philanthropically and in the community and civic affairs leadership things like that and music opens that door to do that have those relationships and in fact last week i was part of a gala with senator hatch that raised money for scholarships in in utah and we had a bunch of ceos and a few other entertainers and all of us kind of came together and i I was on the committee for that and i love that type of thing anyway i guess i just I, i had a realization you know about a year and a half ago that um that my goal, you know, I realized, I mean, I've known that my goal is to perform. My goal is to fill concert halls across the world, like Victor Borga did. Victor Borga is one of the people I most want to emulate. And so I'll, now I spend my time, I guess I was shifting a little bit to the business as opposed to being, you know, with the musician side as, as a, as an entrepreneur, my time is spent getting myself booked in concert halls, not trying to make viral videos. Now I still do videos. That's still part of it. But what's the number one priority has shifted from try to get viral to, do what I actually want to do. Those are kind of a couple of the things I guess I've learned the hard way through years and years of um, not seeing the success that I wanted and then suddenly realizing that uh, if you chase the right goal, you can get there. And I love what you said about mentors because sometimes I'm a stubborn person. I'm like, I want to figure it out my way. Like I can do it. I don't need help. But like what you're saying, like these people have whatever career or whatever goal it might be that someone has, like someone's gone through it before you and to reach out and ask if they can be your mentor or to follow, you know, like there's so much wisdom to be had, but sometimes it's that humility in asking. It is. Yeah. I, I would not be where I am without their their guidance and um advice so so let's go back to your your life as an accountant it was busy yeah Um, busy. i mean there were lots of midnight nights and there were lots of um weekends where you're logging on and um it's very demanding profession so it's a very good profession but especially around tax season yeah, but then as you get, as you move up in those firms, it becomes year round that you're that busy, and sometimes so, yeah, it's pretty intense. So as you're there, what made you decide? You know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go back to music. It was two different things. The main, well, the thing that brought pushing back to music is in the in the summer of 2014, I started to have flashback desires i guess you could say of i gotta give this another go and part of that actually was seeing others be successful where i perceived i had failed and um so i was saying well this can't just be luck it can't be that all these people are just lucky there's got to be something that's making it that all these people i know have had success in the music industry and i didn't and if i can figure out what that is then i can 
do it. Now that this gets back to the whole mentoring and humility thing, because one of those people who I looked at was my friend, Eric Thane, who has, a, has been a very successful as a video producer and marketer and Celadora studios. Um, he now actually has a, a film company actually. So it's like, well, what am I going to do? And another thing I actually, I've never shared this in an interview publicly either, but I, I was considering a PhD in business the same time that I decided to go into music. A and, PhD in uh-huh. business? Yeah. Man. So I was considering that. And then, um, when I was talking to somebody about it, I was like, well, am I going to have enough time for music on the side? And they were like, no, you're not. And then all of a sudden that was the big moment when it was like, maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Maybe the question needs to be, why don't I go into music full time? Anyway, so Eric had been a friend of mine at BYU, same thing. And I watched his channel take off, you know, as I had quit and I watched the success he was getting on YouTube, the kind of people he was working with and the kind of work he was getting and the results. And so I actually, um, in January of, I think it was January, 2015, I, I went to Eric and kind of said, you know, what do I need to do? And Eric gave me some mentoring with how to create viral content here. I'd created 60 over almost 68, I guess, videos by then. And Eric kind of helped direct me and helped me realize some of the things I was missing. And then actually another friend of mine, who's a mutual friend of ours, Brandon, that uh, in marketing, he and I kind of talked about it as well. Oh, wait, it was Brandon who yeah. helped you with So the... Brandon helped me actually oh, with the concept for that video. Okay. He was the one that I first talked through, our, the frozen video concept. Okay. And we started from the goal, which was get back on the Ellen show. And that's actually what led to the whole frozen concept. So I, I don't have normally shared that story, but it literally was planning backwards from the goal, get on the Ellen show. Well, then what do you need to do to get on the Ellen show? Well, you need to make a video that appeals to Ellen's audience. And then what appeals to Ellen's audience? Well, you think, okay, that's moms with kids that watch Ellen. So it's probably frozen would be fun. And so that was kind of how it stepped back. And then I had a lot of desire. And and one of the things is that I really am passionate about entrepreneurship. So I really wanted to own my own business. That's kind of been a goal for a long time. And so it wasn't just that I wanted to be a full-time musician. Like I actually run a business along with performing. So when we have, I have a team, so I have people I work with, but um, I'm actually involved in the pitch. I'm involved in the contract, even though there's somebody else that maybe has that account. And then I'm involved with the strategy, setting strategy for the business. So for example, a, a big tour that I did this year with Deseret Book, that was something that I sort of brought to the team, if you will, and, and, and worked with Deseret Book to kind of initiate that are things that have kind of come about from strategy sessions. So I, anyway, I wanted to get back in that. I wanted to I, have my own business and I wanted to be in music. There's nothing I'm more passionate about. The last day of your, your job and you're like, okay, I'm going into business for myself. Was that a scary moment? Exciting? It wasn't as frightening as it could be because I had some part-time work I'd taken on. Uh-huh. So I had enough to guarantee my rent and my health insurance. That's, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, but I was, I was fine to live like a top ramen, you know, college student. Um, but I had enough through that to guarantee my, my living. When it got a little scarier was when I got the record deal and that meant I was going to be doing an album now. I had quit, had to quit some of the part time work I was doing. And so that started to get a little scarier because I, I lost one source of income. And probably since you're so, a numbers guy, it's even more scary because oh yeah. you pay attention. <laughs> oh yeah. The little bit scarier part was probably when I decided to quit the other one. So I had two part-time gigs and when I quit the other one, cause then it's like, okay, it's really up to me now. So when you get to the point where your opportunities exceed your time to handle them is when you realize that you need a career change and, and when I started turning away a paid opportunities, like a paid video sponsorship that I turned away in, I think the end of 2016. Um, and it's like, okay, I'm probably at the point where I should be quitting my job. If I'm turning away this, cause I don't have enough time to do it. I probably need to actually quit my job and just focus on this. So now it's, it's fine. I'm, you know, I've got enough momentum now with the career that, uh, 
honestly, I, yeah, I don't really, I don't really stress about it, which is funny because I'm kind of made of stress, but <laughs> if I'm being perfectly honest, but I don't really stress about the career. Um, we've got great, you know, traditions starting now. I'm going down for my second show in the Phoenix area. So Gilbert, I'll be there at Christmas. Got a great uh, producer and friend that's initiated me in that market and got things going with our sponsors and with the venue down there. So we'll be back for a second show. Um, Rexburg, same thing. Got a guy up there, brought me up with the Music Teachers Association and they were super supportive. Now we've got a, a credit union up there. It's going to be sponsoring my show at Christmas, coming back to create an annual tradition. We've got stuff going in Twin Falls and in Boise. You've got sponsors and it's just, it's starting to grow and, uh, and you get to do it yeah, full time. That's the best part is waking up in the, you know, in the morning and realizing like, well, actually the best part is Sunday nights because everybody else is like, Oh, I got to go into work. And I'm like, Oh, tomorrow I get to get up and write songs for Disney. I'm like, this is cool. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's pretty exciting. So that's way cool. Yeah. Okay. So with the piano, did you start out like every kid playing at a young age and then you just didn't drop out like the rest of us did? When I was in fourth grade, I was in the spelling bee and I won the school spelling bee in fourth grade. Hey. And, um, <laughs> then I was, then I got out in like the second or third round in the next level, which is regionals. And I remember being like, Oh, it's a bummer. And so then the next year, I'm like, I'm going to study a little harder, you know, for the spelling bee when I, and I want the second year. And so I was like, I'm going to study a little harder for regionals. Well, the next year I made it in the top 10 at regionals out of like 150 people. And I still remember the feeling. I was just like, holy Toledo, like what just happened? I made the top 10 at the spelling bee. This is crazy. So all of a sudden that was kind of like the, what like kicked me into gear. So I went on to win the California state kind of Man. consolation B, if you will. Um, and I got, you know, big savings bond and, you know, TV interviews and all this stuff that happened. So it's kind of like, dang. And then the next two years, I ended up winning the regional competition, which was actually a bigger deal. And I went to the Washington, D.C., to the National Spelling Bee. So all of that. And I started to, I was at that point, I was actually doing like competitively. I mean, it was a year round. I was studying. So spelling. you're an excellent speller. I still am. Yeah. Oh, people, I'm such a bad speller. So I'm yeah. always intimidated by. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because people are like, ah, nobody's like, they'll tell me when I sign CDs, like no one ever spelled all of our names right. I'm like, well, yeah, it's the spelling bee. And I usually, I talk about the story in, on stage actually, but basically after that though, the, the kind of the downside of all of that, um, is, just think back to middle school, like think about how awkward everybody is in middle school. Now, like take the normal awkwardness and add in that you're a national spelling bee, like <laughs> champion speller. Okay. Not a good combination. <laughs> Not good. So I definitely got teased and picked on, um, school and church. Anyway, I was a very nerdy kid. It, it was pretty hard. And so coming into high school, honestly, I was, you know, sometimes having a bit of a tough time. I just didn't necessarily have a ton of friends and didn't really feel like I fit in socially and, and I was like, you know, I need to pursue something different. And I was already, I'd been playing the piano, you know, I'd take piano lessons like everybody else. And so piano just kind of all of a sudden became my passion. And then I realized that piano could connect you with people. And it's almost like I went from being like kind of that awkward spelling bee guy to like the cool dude that could play the stuff on the piano. And so I don't know, I think that that kind of drove it. And I think kind of drove my entertainer personality. And I started doing some of the comedic type of stuff. So Anyway, that's a long story. And again, there's a little bit of sob story on the spelling bee in there, but, but, but I love that because it's so relatable because especially junior high, everyone has their thing. Even if yep. they aren't like, it's not noticeable to everyone. Everyone has their thing that they feel awkward about and that they yep. just are not comfortable in their own skin. And so that's really cool for you to be able to share that as you're performing and they see you up on stage being confident and they're like, wow, you know, so you can be the kid that everybody makes fun of and you can come back and be, 
the star. I mean, Dan Reynolds from Imagine Dragons just wrote a song about that. That's, he talks about the exact same thing, you know, being the kid that everyone just kind of like, you know, and, um, and, and honestly, that's, I mean, my material is based on the idea of being a nerd. Like a lot of my comedic stuff is that is my source for comedy. It's personal, it's actual personal awkward stories like getting bored of people's weddings. So I play breakup songs when, <laughs> when I would play wedding receptions and I could sneak it in. Nobody would notice. I have a song about, can I, can I set you up on a date about how everybody wants to set me up on a date? <laughs> I'm currently writing a song about the spelling bee. So <laughs> oh, really? it's not done yet, but, um, might debut it at my next concert if it's done in time. Is it just um, a bunch of big words that you're singing? No, it's a, it's a, it's a song of apologies to my former self, but dear me, sorry for the dang spelling bee is the working title. That's the <laughs> I like draft, it. The draft. Thanks. And my, <laughs> when I write lyrics for those, this is only the second one. It'd be the second song in my show mm-hmm. that I've written, an original song with lyrics. Um, I'm inspired by Tom Lear, who was a master um, at alliteration. And can I set you up on a date? That song, every line rhymes. So uh, the entire song rhymes with date, every single line. Mate. And uh, yeah, with your future mate, um, some, you know, all, all these, it's a funny song. You should listen to it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I do spend a lot of time writing comedic material. People are like, oh, how much do you practice piano? And it's like, well, I obviously have to practice, keep things up. But I, I spend a lot of my time um, writing comedic material to uh for the show um okay so this is sort of off topic but i was thinking about it like how you were talking about how you want to have all these places filled for your concerts and everything do you ever get nervous anymore like uh, performing in front of big groups or is it like no big deal i don't get nervous about playing the piano and uh, yeah i haven't been nervous about playing the piano in years probably Mm -hmm. That's because i've i could play the piano in my sleep you know like that's just that's just very easy um I do sometimes get nervous still for other aspects of the show. So some of the shtick antics I do on stage are pretty challenging. Um, playing the piano backwards is, even though I've been doing it for over a decade, is actually challenging still. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a hard to stretch for one. And it's all muscle memory driven for me now. So like if, um, I mean, I can think through it mentally, but if you, you know, if you lose your train of thought or something, it can just totally throw it off. Um, and so that is nerve wracking about it. Um, I do a thing in my uh, Christmas shows where I actually play the piano and I pluck the strings as well at the same time. So I do a duet with the piano, but just me doing a piano and plucking at the same time. That's very challenging. Um, I have a puppet that joins me on stage in my show and that's, that's, uh, so he plays the piano with me. Um, there's various things that I do that are, that are challenging. And then there's still certain settings, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is in the entertainment business, when you do, um, when you do events for a living, if you're on stage, that's one thing, but when you're, you know, in a hall, but when you do events elsewhere, um, no matter who you are, you're going to have tough setups. You're going to have rooms where this is the PA system's terrible. So yeah, that's the setup of an event can, can make you nervous and you just have to laugh about it and do your best to prevent it from happening next time. So do you have any examples of those gigs that really have gone south for you? So as I mentioned, the room setup is crucial. So this, the piano was off stage. So I would have to basically walk off stage every time I'd go back to the piano. Um, sound system, people couldn't hear. So they couldn't hear what I was saying. They couldn't understand what I was saying. And then on top of that, there was a ton of noise elsewhere in the room. There were all these other activities going on, distracting people the entire time. So it was a horrendous setup. Now, it, you know, it's good friends of mine that put on the event. So it's just, it was, 
it was just an unfortunate circumstance that these things happened. But yeah, you learn, you know, after that event, as I was flying home and, you know, had quite a few hours at a layover, I, I started researching what everybody else in the business does under these circumstances because everybody, every single major like commercial performer, entertainer has dealt with this multiple times across their career. And that, uh, after that show, I had about three or four other corporate events the next few weeks. And they were some of the best events I'd ever had because of new things I had put into my place after that terrible experience. So you learn more from those hard shows than you learned from any of your other ones. The other ones get you excited. The ones where the audience goes nuts and, you know, it's just amazing. But you learn what makes your show better from the ones where you're like, oh, eh. you know, that, I mean, it's a, a great entertainer has a, has great material and great delivery, but then a really seasoned performer can make that work even under terrible conditions. I mean, I, again, I have a friend who his, his, uh, his show is five figures to book. So he's very expensive and he got booked once for an event and 10 people came to the event and he would look down the audience. He's like, you guys have no idea what the price per head was tonight <laughs> for 10 of you. They're here used to performing for 10,000. No joke. A lot of events he's done are for like two to 10,000 people did a show for 10 people at the peak of his career and just said, you know, we're just going to have a fun time. And it was the, you know, it's a very memorable show for him. And so, yeah. And probably just, for those 10 people, it's like yeah. just hanging out. Cause that was, they got quite a, and, and that's happened to me too. I mean, I've, I've, I've done events. I, I had one time, this was not too long ago. I had an event one night, um, very small private concert, paid thousands of dollars to have me come and play at their home for this this small event. The next day, I was performing that music in a promotional signing at a retail store, and uh, nobody was even paying attention. <laughs> it was like, in another state the night before, I had been paid a ton of money to do those same songs for people, and here I was, and there, there, was, a, there was a famous violinist that did this. I think they put an experiment, they, get, they put him in the subway in New York or D.C., and nobody paid him a second glance. I mean, hardly anybody. And the night before, he had played to a sold-out concert of like 3,000 people in the Kennedy Center. And he was one of the most famous violinists in the world. And nobody paid him a second glance when he was in the subway because he was, it was out of context. And that's the funny thing about our world is people just don't pay a lot of attention until they have a reason to pay attention. It's, I'm not digging the human race. I'm just that that's just the circumstance of fame in the music industry. And entertainment is – it's – it's really a game to get yourself in the light and to get people to pay attention. And um, anyway, so yeah, it keeps you, it keeps you humble because you're sitting there and you're like, all right, well today I'm making, you know, 50 cents an hour to do this promotional appearance. And yesterday I made more in a night than I'd make in a month, you know, at my old job. And you know, I mean, that's just yeah. the way it is. So you just have to stay humble because that's going to be your life. Well, so. and, and in talking about events, so if people haven't heard about you before, what is it that you bring to these? You do a lot of corporate gigs and you do different things. What is it that you bring to the table that's different than other piano players? Yeah. So it's really the intersection of music and comedy and interaction. It's really those three things. There's three components to the show. So the show will include things like Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. That's a piece that almost virtually everybody recognizes because it's been a lot of commercials. It's just a very, very famous. You don't have to know piano to know that song. So I'll do stuff like that, actually concert piano music. And then on the comedy side, you know, I talk about the songs, playing breakup songs for people's weddings and, you know, what you can get away with at funerals (laughs) when people aren't paying attention, the 
little songs you could sneak in, like another one Wait, bites really, the dust. And, you really would sneak these um, in. I I talk about that one more in hypothetical. Okay. Yeah, but and then I'll talk about my piano lessons. I'm like, and, they're gonna come haunt you. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah, well Yeah. Um, you know <laughs> um I can make more macabre jokes about that, but with funerals. Um with uh, piano lessons, you know, how do you get away with, how do you stay entertained in your piano lessons? How do you sneak, you know, Mozart or sneak Michael Jackson into your Mozart songs and stuff like that? So that's like the comedy side. And can I set you up on a date and these stories and, and people love that. And then there's kind of the, the shtick and the interactive bits. And so that's where, you know, I have a bit where people give me three random notes on the piano and I turn it into a song in any style that they dictate. So we'll get, there's, there's, um, 2000 possible combinations of, three notes. And sometimes I do five notes to make it harder, which is over 20,000 possible combinations. Um, and then I'll, they'll take any style. And it's just, and so people love it because it's like this on the spot song. They watch it being created. I take requests. I do medleys of requests, everything from Led Zeppelin to Leonard Skinner to Little Mermaid. It'll be in the same little request mashup. And so it's just, it's a very fun variety show. And that's where, you know, I mean, whether it's company events or public concerts, the, the, the funnest thing for me is seeing, um, like at family concerts, when people bring their kids is seeing the dads leave having fun. Because dads don't like to go to piano concerts. Like, that's like not a thing you do, right? Mm-hmm. They want to be watching the NBA finals instead mm-hmm. of sitting there at a concert or whatever, right? And these dads will leave and they're like, that was really fun. <laughs> I remember a concert I had and somebody requested, she thinks my tractor is sexy. <laughs> and I played it in the request mashup and I heard a roar of male voices from the back of the room. <laughs> and this was like a more like rural community. Mm-hmm. They were like, I can't believe you just played that song. And I was like, I'm pretty sure none of those guys are going to complain when their wives are like, hey, we're taking the kids back to this dude's <laughs> concert because they can't believe that I actually played that song, yeah. right? So I mean, they're probably just messing with me to see mm-hmm. if I even knew that. So that's fun. And then again, the corporate events, it's just a really fun thing because, you know, especially, I mean, companies that like to have a show that like to have something that sit down entertainment at their annual meeting or conference association. Um, it's just very different because it's, it's not the same as bringing a comedian. It's not the same as bringing a band or a juggler. It's, it's a, it's a very unique. Cause sometimes you think so. piano music, you're like, Oh, great. P- <laughs> piano People music. think boring. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But, but when you do add all these things that make it relatable, then it's like, Oh, this is, this is great. This is exciting. The funny thing is that's what brings people in the door. But then the most powerful thing in any of those settings is always, it's the, it's the original instrumental music, my album, Piano Preludes. That is what the highlight of the show is. And it's like consistent, like time and time again, you know, you get hired for a corporate gig and people say, Oh yeah, we're so excited. We have the backwards piano man going to come perform and like you're gonna do that stuff you did on the Ellen show and that's what they're excited about and then after the show you say what was your favorite part and they'll say it was when you played Champs-Élysées that piano violin piece so I think that's cool some people are like how does this make sense that you do comedy and serious music but I I love it it creates in my opinion a more satisfying show when you both laugh and are touched um, emotionally and spiritually in the same concert and that's what Disney does the most powerful movies from Disney make us laugh cry and be inspired in the movie. Pixar, totally. Lion King. Lion when, King. Yeah. <laughs> when Mufasa dies. Oh, yeah. Wait, he... Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's The Lion King. Uh-huh. Um, Up. I mean, think about Up yeah. for crying out loud. This is one of the most epic movies ever because you're crying five minutes into the movie. But that's because... But we also love Pixar. And mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's cute. Um, and you did so, a video Up. Yes. And that was one of your viral ones. Yes. That video is a legacy that my grandparents are leaving me that is amazing because that video opened a lot of doors 
that actually helped contribute to the work I do now with, you know, Disney as a, as, and what's, it's, it's technically with their publisher, Hal Leonard, and, um, but in sheet music arranging. And Up has attracted fans all over the world. Um, and you said that your grandparents, they can't leave the house without being recognized. You know, now that it's been a couple of years, I don't know if they still get recognized in the store. <laughs> oh, I but guess they, that was an old thing. They ever. would, though. Yeah, if they yeah. were grocery shopping, people would be like, hey, you're that couple in the video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My grandparents are very private people. <laughs> and so it was a sacrifice for them to do that. But that was very grateful that they participated in that video. And Well, and looking at your grandparents, like, how long have they been married for? It was over... It's now 63 years. 63 years? Like, that's so amazing in today's world. Like, honestly, 63 years is just like people's jaws drop. Right. And and to see that and that they just look like so in love and so... And that they actually play the piano. That's cool. So, did you learn from them at all or... My grandpa used to take me down to the the local uh, chapel and... um, teach me stuff on the organ when I was in high school because I play the organ as well and he plays the organ. And, and so, yeah, he would take me down there. But no, I never had piano lessons from them. But there is definitely a love of music in the family. They would play duets at like family reunions, things like that. So cool. that was fun growing up with with that. And now we have this family treasure, you know, for everyone. And, and actually because of the up video, I've been kind of inspired. So I've gone and filmed more videos with them, not music videos, but just uh, interviewing them, talking about aspects of their lives, because like, in my opinion, it would be a tragedy to have this so fun YouTube video with them, but not have video where they actually talk about, you know, their, they served as missionaries in Africa and in Switzerland and Washington DC and, you know, raising their family. So it's been really special to have that. I, I've been, in fact, I was over at their house last night. Actually. That's really so. cool that you get to preserve their memory for yeah. everyone. So, Jason, thank you so much for sharing your story today. I, I think the thing that I relate most to is you had this goal and it took so many years to get there. And I can relate with my goal of, of wanting to run faster that it's been such a long process and I'm still not there yet. And so seeing your story really just gives me that hope that that I can do it, you know? And, and I think for a lot of people, you know, especially things that you shared about, like planning backwards, having this big goal, like you had a goal to get back on Ellen and, and then you're like, okay, how am I going to get back on Ellen and, and doing the, the frozen video. And then what you talked about with mentors and these people that have this wisdom that they've been in your shoes before and they they were able to guide you. And so I really love that, all that. And I'm so glad that, so a little background story. Um, I first heard about Jason back in December. I was talking to my friend Brandon and I was like, yeah, I want to do this po- podcast all about believing in the possible. He's like, oh, you're going to have to interview my friend Jason. Like he's totally going after his dreams. And maybe I didn't pay attention when Brandon was talking about you, but all I really heard was like YouTube videos. And I was like, okay, cool. Like this guy's doing YouTube videos. And then, I mean, at that time I wasn't super serious about podcasting. It was still like a thought. It wasn't really emotion. And so a couple of weeks ago when I had contacted you for interview and you accepted, I was like, okay, maybe I should see a little bit more of what this guy does. And so as I was Googling you, I was like, holy cow, this guy's legit. But thank you so much for being on the show, even though you're legit. Oh, thank you. <laughs> a place that people can find you is jasonlyleblack.com, right? Yeah. So on my website, jasonlyleblack.com, find out information about my show. That's where I'm you know, booking contact for my assistant. 
Um, and then on Pandora is where I can hear my music. So go on to Pandora. You can actually hear it all over. So it's, it's on Spotify and Apple music mm-hmm. and all that as well. But Pandora you can go create a station off one of my tracks and you'll get uh, to hear all of my music and also hear um, a lot of other great artists. So that's where I always encourage people to go. And it's great when you're falling asleep at night or if you have kids and you're trying to get your kids to fall asleep at night or you're driving home from work, and you need to decompress. Um, make a Pandora station for me and it'll, it's something that'll be very, uh, relaxing and very therapeutic for you. So, oh, and I also have a text in link, so I should mention that those that want to follow my music, um, if you are in the United States, you can text, uh, my middle name, Lyle, L-Y-L-E to 444-999. So that number is 444-999. You text my middle name, Lyle into that and you can get on my text and email list and that way you'll get, you'll get my new video links when they're sent out. When I release new videos and my touring, when it's in your area, you'll get a, You'll get a little text letting you know I'm coming into town for a show. So if you want to get tickets, you can come. I don't know if you just saw like my mouth drop, but I'm like, what is a text link? And that's so cool that yeah. it's like an email list, but text. So smart. Who Great checks emails? Yeah. Text list. We're going to go marketing for a second. You own your text list. You don't own Facebook. You don't own YouTube, any of that stuff. Those can change and the algorithms change. But when you have a text list, you can always keep in touch with your fans. Oh, great plug. That's why you do it. (laughs) Well, once again, guys, I'll have a link to Jason's YouTube videos and his site and Pandora all on notablepeats.com. So check that out. And remember to put on your shoes, do your best and believe in the impossible. All my dreams are coming. All my dreams are humming. All my dreams are coming true. For those of you that live in Salt Lake, Jason is going to be performing at the Sandy Amphitheater on July 8th at 8 p.m. And this is a great family concert. So for tickets, go to sandyampamp.com. Tell your friends it will be a a great time. And who doesn't love an outdoor concert? (laughs) 